This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with Chris Martin to discuss how social media is shaping us and what we can do to push back against its negative impacts. Chris brings years of expertise and experience from building Lifeway Christian's online brand to his new book, Terms of Service. This is not a conversation encouraging you to completely avoid social media, but I think John Dreyer's endorsement of Terms of Service describes today's conversation well. It's not hard to offer negative critiques of the social internet. What is hard is giving sustained attention to those problems and following it with sound guidance on how to live faithfully in the real world. Chris's years of experience in digital ministry and careful personal practices make him a worthy guide. So as we begin, I want to invite you to open your listening app. Maybe it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and the list goes on. And click follow so you don't miss the three remaining episodes in February. Next week, John Eldridge is on the show, followed by Erica Baldwin, who shares her story of hope while living with a rare invisible disease. And then we end the month with Max Licato. So make sure you are following Grace Enough Podcast in your favorite listening app. Okay, without further ado, here is this week's conversation with Chris Martin. Good afternoon, Chris, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit about terms of service, which everyone will learn a little bit about. But as we get started, will you go ahead, share a little bit about yourself, your family, and what you do on a day-to-day basis with our listeners? Of course. Uh, So my name is Chris Martin. I'm originally from Northeast Indiana. My wife, Susie, and I live just outside Nashville, Tennessee with our daughter, Maggie Magnolia is her full name, and um, our, our our dog Rizzo, our golden doodle Rizzo, named after the Chicago Cub great Anthony Rizzo, and um, yeah, so we, we live just outside Nashville. Uh, I spent about seven years working at Lifeway Christian Resources, um, doing a handful of digital, I guess, digital marketing roles. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a f- spent some time running some blogs and leading blog strategy, and then spent time leading all of social media strategy at Lifeway. So for a couple of years, I ran the Lifeway social media handles and tried to lead kind of the social media strategy of the whole organization. Uh, And in September of 2020, joined Moody Publishers. I kind of wanted to get, I I loved my friends at Lifeway. I kind of wanted to get out of the social media game, honestly, as as we'll talk about in this this conversation uh, around this book, a lot of it kind of comes out of that, frankly. Um, But it was just getting kind of exhausting, you know, kind of refereeing on social media every day and trying to chase down the different algorithms and how things work. And so I was looking to stay in, in Christian ministry and even Christian publishing. I was pretty open and uh, decided to join Moody Publishers and do some work that's a little bit 
less online. I do, I still do some online work, but I get to edit books and do some things that maybe feel like they have a longer lasting impact than sending tweets or, or posting to Facebook or things like that. So I really enjoy it. Um, I get to help with some, some online content initiatives that they have at Moody Publishers. And then also, um, like I said, I, I get to edit uh, about half of our books. I get to just do like theological editing and some content editing and things like that. So I really enjoy it. And then for fun, myself, I, I write about social media on my own time. So that's where yeah. this book was born out of. I'm actually working on a second book right now, similar topic, but more for pastors and church leaders. Um, and uh, I, I write about twice a week through my newsletter called Terms of Service, the same name as the book. So yeah. Wow. And so with Moody, does the majority of their staff now work remotely with all that's gone on with this pandemic? Because I know you're, you're friends with Trillia and she's yeah. obviously in your area. Yes, she and I have joked that uh, we should open a, a Moody South office <laughs> here in because uh, we're in the process of hiring another person who lives in the Franklin area. So we're going to have at least uh, nice. three of us who live in the greater Nashville area. And then we have like a Moody radio station down here in town. That's so right. we're like, hey, we could just kind of like, you know, post up in their office and have a sort of Moody Moody Institute South. And uh, no, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Moody is they, they weren't really doing a whole lot of remote work before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. and obviously I joined in September of 20. So kind of right in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And they've learned that, Hey, we can actually do this remote work stuff. So folks who live locally have the option to go into the office and things like that. But um, the, at this point, they're not requiring anyone to go in. I think when things would get what, to whatever normal looks like, um, mm -hmm. you know, they may require folks who live within a certain distance to pop in, you know, once a week on the same day so they can see one another. But right. a lot of it's role dependent, like Trillia and I, don't have to move to Chicago, but we'll probably, uh, you know, be flying there a, a few times a year and spending a few days with our colleagues and things like that. And that's, that's really valuable. I, I've only got to do it once or twice in my, uh, actually, yeah, just once in my, in my about one year of being there, which is yeah. a bummer, uh, given just all of the, all of the lockdowns and, right. and all that, but, um, but it's really fun when we get to do it and it's a good time. So that's awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about your faith journey. How did you come to know Christ? I always love to just ask my guests a little bit about that backstory. Yeah. So I grew up in Northeast Indiana, Fort Wayne, second largest city up in Indiana and, um, grew up going to church. My parents, um, very, I, I guess the, the phrase is raised in a Christian home very much. So my parents were really faithful about doing nightly devos with us and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up going to church, a couple of different churches. I think my parents were trying to figure out kind of like where they fit in terms of like worship and denominational yeah. stuff and things like that. And so by the time we were in elementary school, we kind of settled in this non-denominational church and was going to church a bunch. And the, the whole midweek thing, we, we, we had a midweek, we did not have Awana, we had Pioneer Club, but very oh, yeah. similar concept. And, and so, uh, so I did Pioneer Club and did all those sorts of things. And I remember going to church a lot and hearing our pastor, Pastor Jim, who was great, talk about um, asking Jesus into your heart and being saved. And I'm sure he did explain the exact way to do it, but I'm very like, type a, if anyone's an Enneagram person, I'm very much a number one. And Me so too. I like, I, yeah, yeah. I really like things to be like laid out step by step to make sure everything's in order. And, and I do it exactly right. And my, you know, elementary school ears felt like pastor Jim always told us we needed to ask Jesus into our heart to be saved, but I never felt like 
I knew exactly what to say. Like, I was mm. like, I need a recipe. I need that formula. I want to like, this seems like something really important. My Sunday school teacher is telling me it's important. Uh, your pastor, Jim, you're telling me it's really important, but I feel like, I don't know. I want to make sure I say everything exactly right. I knew it had something to do with a prayer, but that beyond that, I was like, I don't really know. And so my third grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Dave, who uh, was a, a grandfatherly figure then, and I'm pretty sure he's still around and maybe even teaching Sunday school today. So he's been oh. around for a while. Mr. Dave is a, is a gem. Um, That's awesome. I remember him leading our third grade Sunday school class through the sinner's prayer in third grade. But, and wh while I prayed it and was like, ah, finally, somebody explained exactly what I have to do, you know, to, to be saved. But then, you know, I was always kind of a good kid in school. I never got in trouble, really. I got really good grades and nothing about my life really changed after that third grade Sunday school class. Like, I wasn't interested in reading my Bible any more than I was before. I wasn't uh, praying regularly as a third or fourth grader outside of whatever my parents were doing with me. And then it was about when I was a junior in high school, um, had some just like relational stressors. This girl I really liked rejected me. We're married now. So I guess everything worked <laughs> out. But um, uh, but I just remember going through this kind of like as much as a junior in high school can without having a serious tragedy. I kind of went through this dark night of the soul of like, who am I? What am I about? I've been chasing this girl I really like and she just rejected me. Like what what am I doing here? And and our youth group was going through a sermon series on like perseverance at the time and, and not being anxious. I remember our pastor preaching on Matthew five, the sermon on the mountain, don't be anxious, trust me. I don't remember the date or anything like that, but I remember very much during that sermon series, realizing that I had been putting my faith in myself and very much in my circumstances. And though I had been going through the motions and, and like on the outside looked like a Christian, I didn't really know where my faith was set. Uh, my faith yeah. was really more set in myself. Um, and so it was really around my junior year of high school that I was like, okay, I think I recognize the problem here. Um, I think, I think I actually need to commit my life to Christ, like in a functional way. Mm -hmm. And so it was around, I think my junior year of high school that I kind of came to faith and, and then my life slowly started to change. My priorities slowly started to change. Um, and I kind of started to get it. It's like, it's complicated, you know, it's not like, it would be a lot cleaner if I was like, yeah, I prayed the prayer in third grade and I was just, everything was great after that. But I really feel like it didn't click with me until I was about a junior in high school. And that's when the whole Christian faith is not an, an activity of your life, but something that you do that, that's at the center of your life really started to become real for me. Well, and I think part of the reason why I asked that question is because of what you just said. How often is it really about the prayer we pray? Right. It's really a lot more about a journey of yes, accepting what Christ did, but learning to surrender your life to him on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, he right. forms us. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think it's like, for me, I don't think this is necessarily a case for everyone, but you're right. Like salvation can be such a hard, like that moment, a lot of people hanging their hat on it. And it's wonderful for people who can do that, but not everyone necessarily has that sort of like light on, like I was That's at exactly this right. place at this time. And, and I think the, for me, it was a sort of like the direction of my affections changed. Like the, mm -hmm. the, it's not like um, everything became clear, but it's like the coordinates of my heart started to change. Mm -hmm when people have asked me before, well, do you feel like you were saved when you were in third grade or as a junior? I'm like, well, you know, only the Lord probably really knows that, but I, the junior year is the one that feels always so much more real to me because it's like, that's when I feel like I had the right North star. 
mm-hmm. um, even though I had gone through the motions, my North Star clearly changed at, at that point. And though I obviously stumbled and fell and was trying to figure out how to live with my desire to sin, you know, in my, in my, in my flesh, but then my mm-hmm. freedom to not sin in my new birth in Christ. But I, I see it as a change in the orientation of your heart mm-hmm. more than a, a certain set of actions. Right. You know? Yeah. Not so much an arrival. Well, in your book, Terms of Service, you're writing much about how the social internet, social media, all the things have and continue to shape us. And so something that you write, I want you to kind of share a little bit more about how we've become servants of the social internet that was originally marketed, I love that you write this, as something that really was for us. The first part of Terms of Service was kind of the hardest to write because it required so much research, but it's one of the most interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I've learned from, I passed the book around to a dozen friends who don't really know anything about social media other than they use it. And a lot of them said, I was afraid of part one being kind of dull and only interested and only interesting to social media nerds like me. Um, but a mm-hmm. lot of my friends said they found part one to be interesting because it was like, here's where we've come from. Like, yeah. here's a history of social media, like AOL mailing, mailing CD ROMs around the world and being the largest producer of CD ROMs in the world for a long time. And then MySpace, MySpace wanting to buy Facebook and, you know, but obviously that didn't happen. What if it would have, gosh, that would be so different. Um, crazy. <laughs> and so it's, it's fun to look through. Yeah. It's fun to look through those things, but early on the social internet and I call it the social, let me talk about that term real quick. If you don't mind, like, sure. I think social media, we think of it when we hear social media, we think of apps immediately. Like you think of icons on your home screen, you think of Facebook, you think of Instagram, you know, whatever your toy of choice is, whatever your drug of choice is, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And we, we think about these particular apps. I use the term social internet rather than social media because I, I think it's really important that we think of the entire internet as a social technology. Like there's a difference between mm-hmm. a technology and, and a medium. Uh, a technology is like the actual infrastructure of what we are, of what we're using. And a medium is like how culture is, disseminated through that piece of technology. Mm. And I think what we have to realize is that like the social internet is architecturally significant, like the actual like code and, and like architecture of the, the foundation, the, the sort of material that creates the stage that we stand and perform on really matters. And like, when you look up Google reviews of a restaurant, you're engaging on the social media, on, on social media or the social internet, as much as if you're posting to Instagram. Um, th- mm. Those are the same things. When you look at Amazon reviews for a book, uh, that's the social internet as much as posting on Facebook is. Um, so all of these things are social. And I think our understanding of social media should go far beyond those three or four apps that we think of because they're on our phone's home screen. So that's just a bit on the term. But I think the we've become servants of the social internet that was originally marketed as something that would serve us. You know, a lot of people see the social internet, social media as a, as a tool that was given to us to be used. And that's how it was presented. Like, Hey, we want this to be a way for you to connect with high school classmates. We want this to be a way for you to raise money for friends who have fallen ill or, or have had something happen to them. Um, we want you to use this to create funny videos and share with one another as like a, a service to you. What we don't realize is we have started to serve this technology that was originally supposed to serve us. Here are some ways. Uh, our data is the financial fuel that powers these platforms. These platforms you use are free. 
Um, some of them may have may have like paid versions like Twitter just added Twitter blue, which adds a bunch of different features that you can use for $3 a month. But all of these, all of these tools are free. And the, the common refrain about this is if the website or social media platform you're using is free, you are the product. And that's true. Um, and more accurately, your data is the product. You aren't even the product. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, they don't care about you and me. In fact, our emotions and our hopes and dreams, they just get in the way of the signals that we send with our fingers when we tap and swipe. And so our data is the financial fuel that powers these platforms. Um, Facebook is one of the most meta now, I suppose, is one of the most lucrative companies in the history of the world because we like sharing videos of our kids. I mean, that's just, that's how it is. And so our data is the financial fuel that powers these platforms. And Facebook couldn't survive if we weren't so interested in expressing ourselves. So we've, we've really come to serve Facebook in that way. Um, second, many of us are so addicted to social media and the social internet. Posting content has started to feel like work. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people who are just like burdened by social media as if they have to do it, as if it's like a prerequisite of being or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's this great quote, um, from Lewis Mumford, who wrote a book called Technics and Civilization back in the early 20th century, like 19, in the 1910s, something like that. And oh, wow. um, Neil, Postman, Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death cites him in, in that 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And uh, Lewis Mumford was writing about the clock, the invention of the clock, or even the wristwatch at the time, perhaps. I'm not sure which one he was talking about. And he said, you know, we invented the clock as a means of serving us to tell us what time it is, you know, oh, it's, it's helpful to know that it's six o'clock in the evening because now it's time for dinner or now it's time to bring the cows in or, or whatever the clock maybe was used for as a service. But just to think about all of the ways now we serve the clock. Mm -hmm. We have to clock in at work or the alarm wakes us up and tells us when we have to get up and we're, we're serving really it may feel like your alarm is serving you, but really you're doing what the alarm clock says, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And so he, he noticed back in the 1910s, there's this tool, the clock that was originally created to serve us, but now we're, we're kind of at the mercy of the clock. I think the same has happened with social media because mm -hmm. we have these tools that were created to help us, but now we kind of feel burdened by them. Neil Postman, yeah. the same guy I just cited, wrote in Amusing Ourselves to Death, he's, he's, he's known for saying, what, what is the problem to which this technology is the solution? He was buying a car one time, like a Honda Civic in the 1990s. And the car salesman said, <laughs> Mr. Postman, Mr. Postman, the car has cruise control and it costs extra and you, you can't get the car without it. And he said, well, what is the problem to which cruise control is the solution? And he's like, well, so you don't have to leave your foot on the pedal the whole time when you're driving on the highway. And Dr. Postman said, I never thought that was really a problem. And he, he asked, he asked, what are these electric windows? Dr. Postman's asking. And he's like, to what is an electric powered window? To what problem is that a solution? And the guy was like, well, you don't have to crank the handle on the, he's like, well, I, I'm a writer and professor. I live a pretty sedentary lifestyle. Using the crank <laughs> on the window is kind of a nice way to get some exercise. And so I think it's good for us to ask. It's true. What are the problem? What are the problems to which these technologies are the solution? Mm. And are they really just creating more problems that are harder to deal with? Maybe we're collecting with class, connecting with classmates, but is that worth the anxiety that we're being burdened with? So yeah. Those are, those are just a couple ways we keep going, but those are just a couple ways that I think that we're kind of coming to serve these platforms. Well, and you have one of your chapters that is titled, We Believe 
attention assigns value. And I mean, really, that is that sentence alone, probably, uh, there probably could be a full book written about that, not just a chapter, right? But flesh that out for us a bit. And, you know, just discuss how destructive this belief really is on us as a human population. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you say an entire book could be written on that chapter. Cause I kind of have an idea of doing that. Um, but the, uh, I, I think this sort of lie that attention determines what's valuable. And we, we believe this lie is really two separate, but related lies. Um, I think we have this idea that a trending or viral piece of content is inherently important simply because it's popular. Mm. I'll come back to that in a second. And second, when people, we, we have this second lie that we believe that when people pay attention to me, they're telling me I'm valuable. And that overarching lie is rooted in the belief that attention equals value, that what is, whatever is most popular is most valuable. So I think we've come to leave, believe that what's trending is important. And that's just not true. Like we have this idea that, oh, if it's trending on Twitter or or something like that, then it must be really important. Back in the day, Facebook had a trending sidebar, which they eventually took away because it was just wreaking all kinds of havoc. That's not true. It just means a lot of people are talking about it. And we have this broken idea that if a lot of people are talking about something, then it must be important. And that's just not true. Like you can check out the trending topics on Twitter at any given time and realize how frivolous and dumb they are. This is not a new phenomenon. Like popularity the old fashioned term for going viral, you know, the offline version of going viral is the popular kid at school is considered important because he gets all the attention. Yeah. Um, but I think the social internet and the, the sort of architecture and incentives that drive what becomes trending and what gets shared has exacerbated that idea that, that what is popular is important. Like there's, there's almost like there's a sort of striving for fame that you, you win the social media game when you go on the Ellen show or on good morning America, it's like, congrats, you've gone viral. Now you get to go on these shows and maybe they'll like give you a car or pay for your school or something like that. Um, and we have, it's like, it's like, that's the end goal for a lot of folks who are out here performing or, or like striving for, fame and, and fortune. And the people who go viral get rich and famous often. Therefore, if they're rich and famous, well, they must be important. And so I think we desperately want to be famous and we desperately want attention, but I think we're so often afraid of being truly known. And I think social media offers a really great avenue for us to strive for attention without the risk of intimacy. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say that because I come back to a conversation that I just had last week with someone that I ran into that I hadn't seen for a long time, but who some of the things that I read on social media are just very, I mean, they're fiery, right? And just really excited. But then when I began to talk about some of those things face to face, the fieriness, the passion, the willingness to just say that same thing to my face was not there. Um, there was a lot more compassion actually and empathy. And I mean, wouldn't, do you agree with that? That overall, yes, that is true. That's because you write a lot about relationships as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, people are a lot more outspoken and bombastic and loud on social media than they are in real life. I've talked to a lot. This next book that I'm writing is for pastors and I've talked to a handful of pastors who say that some of their church members who are loudest on social media about 
the controversial issue of the day are, are often pretty quiet and reserved in church and don't really speak to anyone. Or, or if they do, they're certainly not how they are online. And I think there's this idea. I can't tell you the number of times this has probably been said about me and in, in when I was younger and more fiery. <laughs> um, I can't tell I you the number too. of times I've heard about. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard someone say, well, yeah, he's kind of a jerk online, but it's not really how he is in real life. No, man. No. How you are online is how you are in real life. I don't, I don't buy this idea that, oh, well, they're, yeah, they're kind of a jerk online, but they're not really like, no, they're really like that. And I think how they are in real life is maybe just kind of a cover for how they're acting online. And so I think like I've been guilty of that. And I think we should all be wary of how we present ourselves online because a lot of people from a Christian perspective, a lot of people that may be the primary way they interact with us, especially friends at a distance, family at a distance. And we're really presenting a sort of gospel presentation and how we engage online. And, and we should recognize that for a lot of folks, that is reality of us to them. And and we should just be, be cognizant of that. Yeah. Well, why do you think we keep logging on despite all of this emerging research of the social internet's negative impacts on our brains, on our emo- pretty much on everything. I think the primary reason, well, there are two. Um, I think we're afraid of missing out. Uh, and that's our very real fear. Like I, I've helped lead the student ministry at basically every church we've been a part of since college. Um, but it, currently at the one that we're serving at, I was the on-staff student minister for three years, and now I just volunteer uh, this is a common discussion point among parents that I have with parents that I have with students, students who want phones, whose parents won't give them phones, or or maybe they have a phone, but they're not allowed to have social media. I have conversations with the parents as well about like, when is it wise to do this kind of thing? I'm glad my daughter's only 18 months old and not 14 um, or 12, because uh, I haven't had to deal with this personally yet. Uh, but me. because there's a, there's a very, there's a very real reality that if your kid isn't on social media, they will be socially pariah. I'm trying to think of the right word, socially malformed, socially um, kind of extricated from the social space. That's just unfortunately the case. I can't tell you the number of, I mean, a handful of students over just the past four or five years who I think like, I agree with their parents' decision to not let them on Snapchat yet. At the same time, I feel for the students who aren't getting invited to get togethers with friends or feel like they're missing out on the inside jokes at the lunch table because they're not on the Snapchat group chat. I see both sides of it. Like I want to advocate for the student and be like, I think you should have social media, but at the same time, I know what it can do. And I don't just mean like the obvious things like sending pictures to each other. They shouldn't be sending or things like that. Like that's pretty obvious, but like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aware of the way that it can like just rewire your brain and make you interested in things and getting attention, like all the things we've kind of already talked about. And so everything we just talked about for, for kids and for students, adults deal with it in the same way. Um, 100%. They, they, just don't have, they just don't have anybody who can tell them you're not allowed to have it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. so they have that same fear of missing out. Uh, they're addicted. Some of the earliest pioneers of social media, like Sean Parker, first the founding president of Facebook, who, if you've seen the social network, it's Justin Timberlake's character to make the connection. Um, he like he has spoken recently with Axios just in the last couple of years. Axios is a news organization about how like so many of those guys who have been there since the beginning have literally talked about how they're hacking people's brains because they're they're computer programmers. And so they're just like, how can we hack people's brains to want to use these devices as much as possible? And so like those are the open conversation. Well, maybe not so open in the closed door conversations 
that a lot of the or, the leaders of these earliest social media organizations are are having and have had in the last decade or so. And so I think the reason we keep coming back despite seeing all the research is the same reason it's hard for people to quit smoking who can see the research. Um, it's, right. it's hard to replace that feeling, that little red bubble hovering over your Instagram icon. It's hard to replace that with anything else. Well, and even just recently, as I've started to, and, I, and I've been doing this for a while and then I'll, you know, like you said, it's an addiction. So it's crept right back in. But recently, as I've sat my phone down and walked away, deleted a couple of the apps on my phone, I began to ask myself, like, what did you do with your time before you would just pick up your phone and scroll? And it's almost like my brain was just blank. I could not somehow come up with what I did before. And I thought, wow, this is happening to me who most people would probably say you're a pretty self-controlled individual. But the reality is I am addicted to social media. And so I love something that you Same. wrote. Yeah. I mean, it's so sad. And so something that you did, right. You use, well, we hear the analogy, social media is like a drug, but you go further in saying that analogy is not as true as it could be. Well, you share your analogy, really what you mean by it. So I write in one of the chapters that I've heard social media is like a drug. It like gets you addicted. And we just talked about how a lot of the found, the earliest founders of these platforms, you know, are trying to re rewire your brain. And there's all this talk about like dopamine, which there's, mm -hmm. there's differing like actual research by psychologists about how much of a factor dopamine plays. I don't think it really matters what the actual right. chemical is that's being engaged. We all know that something is being engaged. Um, and so whether it's dopamine or some other sort of chemical that's being engaged by our constant engage and like those red bubbles and those notifications and things like that, something is making us hooked and it's, and it's psychological in nature engaging with these platforms. Social media as a drug is almost too simple. I, the way I describe it is social media is more like a drug dealer than it is a drug. A drug is like one particular thing, like you're addicted to heroin or you're addicted to cocaine. Social media is really more like a drug dealer because it can get your brain or at least like your soul addicted to any number of feelings. Social media can dispense any number of pseudo narcotics, I guess you could say. It can make us happy. It can make us sad. It can make us wind down, like chill out. It can make us amped up. It can get us excited or angry. Mm. And so I think, you know, there are uppers and downers in the, in the drug world. Not that I'm very familiar, but I know there are like drugs that get you amped up and going. Right. And there are drugs that kind of chill, chill you out and make you more laid back. And social media, depending on how you're feeling, uh, the algorithms, which is just, that's a term people throw around. It's like the shady word, the algorithms. It's really just all the mathematical equations that decide what you see in your feeds, right? Because virtually every feed on social media is not just chronological like they were in the older days. That's right. um, all of them are curated by mathematical equations that deliver you the content that they think you would find most interesting based on what you've clicked on or watched in the past. Okay. So like, that's what we talk about when we're talking about algorithms. So the algorithms are saying, all right, what's, what's Amber feeling right now? Like what's Chris feeling? They, they end of the day, they're looking to watch something funny. Well, yeah. In the past three days, we've seen that they've really watched more funny content for the first 30 minutes after they've gotten done working. So let's deliver them funny content or, oh man, in the evenings when they're lying awake at night at 11 o'clock and sometimes that's kind of when they're down. So let's deliver them some more sad content around that time. 
these platforms know these things about us. They know us better than we know ourselves. And so really social media can, can distribute any number of sort of pseudo narcotics that we want. It's just a matter of, do we feel like watching something funny or do we feel like watching something that makes us cry um, or makes us mad? That's another one that we haven't even really talked about is even the most recent face Facebook papers that have been released in October of, of 2021 uh, reveal all kinds of troubling data about how Facebook is really capitalized on the anger of its users for a profit. And so I think we should be aware that these platforms aren't neutral, uh, which is another argument people like to make. And, and, these platforms aren't neutral. They're incentivized to keep us on and swiping and clicking and tapping as much as possible. And they're willing to make us angry or sad or sometimes happy. Uh, they just want to keep us engaged. They don't really care about how we feel. Yeah. Oh, man, it's <laughs> such a downer, right? Like, yeah, because, sorry. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, I know a lot of this stuff, right? But it's good. You're right. We need to know it and we need to come face to face with it and make a decision. And, and I think like my biggest thing to kind of summarize, I don't know if we would say this at the end or not, but like, since we're kind of here, let me say this. Some folks have asked me, well, why, like, why do you, if you think social media is all bad, like, why do you use social media? Why don't you tell people to just delete their accounts? And I, I don't think deleting your account solves the problem. Like I talk with my 85 year old grandmother every Sunday and she's never used the internet in her life. And she sometimes tells like with some frequency tells me what her friends told her they saw on Facebook. Like, mm -hmm. and that's like, she, so she's even there and she doesn't even use the internet. So I don't think we can really escape this stuff. I think our best hope is to have these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and stop scrolling for just a minute, just long enough to zoom out and ask ourselves the questions like, what is scrolling doing to us? what is having notifications on doing to me? So like I have social media apps on my phone. I have zero notifications turned on. Same. Um, I have time limits set and we can talk about practical things maybe toward the end. But I think there are practical steps you can take to where you don't have to be this sort of like Luddite monk who never uses social media at all. And you can use them in some metered, disciplined ways um, that allow you to maybe not get sucked into the sort of brain rewiring that can happen. Um, but you can still engage them in some way so that you maybe don't feel like you're missing out. You can engage in, you know, some of these platforms that could be helpful and useful in certain ways. Well, and that's the thing too, like social media, social internet, it's not going anywhere. Um, and so it's just like, I've told, I mean, I've talked to some of my friends and even the way, cause I do have an almost 12 year old, a nine year old and a six year old. And it's like, it's not going to help them for me to go and now stick my head in the sand. That's just not the way the world works because then they are educated by whoever is down the road showing them all the things. Um, now, that's also not an excuse for me to just, you know, dive in and decide that I'm just going to engage constantly and take in all the things. And so we can talk a little bit more about some of the practical applications here in just a little bit, because I do want to do something a little bit fun. Um, after you write the five ways social internet shapes us, you share six ideas of where to go from here. And so I'm going to say those chapter titles out loud. And I just want you to share, you know, the first two or three sentences or thoughts that come to your mind when I speak those titles to you. So the first one that you write is study history. Yeah. So the first couple of thoughts that come to my mind here are read more or at least as much about the past as you read about the present. Mm. So if you find yourself reading the news or watching the news or listening to news podcasts or something like that, 
listen to history podcasts, read some history books. And they're not all dry and boring like your high school mm-hmm. history textbook. There are some amazing, like read Unbroken, read a great biography of a president, like the Alexander Hamilton biography that inspired the musical. Now that is a lengthy one, so be prepared. But all of re- his read are, great, Adam Solomon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of Ron Chernow's biographies are amazing. Read all of them. Um, read The Pioneers by David McCullough. Like there are some really amazing history books out there um, about all kinds of things. I love reading about like early American history. So like that's where a lot of my interest lies, but engage history so you can like recognize where we've been so you can better understand where we are. Um, and I think that's that's an important thing to do. Okay, admire creation. Go for daily walks and don't take your headphones. No headphones, no music. Set up a bird feeder in your yard. If you have a yard and you're listening, set up a bird feeder. I'm like a... I'm like the most amateur bird watcher in the world. Like I, I, I hesitate to even call myself a bird watcher because I can't identify a whole lot, but I have a, I have a window mounted bird feeder that I can watch them at my office window. I've got a couple feeders in the backyard, a couple houses. And it just like, I like sitting out on the back porch and watching them go about their day. And you realize, you know, these birds have lives too. And you know, they don't have like high level mental processing like humans do, but you kind of, those passages about God considering the sparrow, truly he'll consider you start to come to life a little bit more if you look at just the creation around you. And so I I've always found bird watching to be a very grounding sort of small Mm -hmm. hobby. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a parent, like point some of those things out to your kids, because we're in the, not when this airs, we will be in the dead of winter, but currently when we're recording, we're in the height of fall here in Raleigh, probably similarly in Nashville. And I mean, it is just gorgeous this year, like more gorgeous than I remember in years past. I know it must just be perfect weather patterns or whatever, but I have been in awe in my town and so quick to just look, say to my kids like, oh my goodness, look at that red tree. But I don't know about you. You have a grandmother still living. I remember when I was younger being like, man, old people just love to watch creation. <laughs> and now that's me. It's true. <laughs> Right. Well, and I think like, I just think that you have to, in in terms of like the context of our conversation, when you ground yourself in Mm -hmm. things that are earthy and real and like physical, you start to realize that, that our mediated pixelated life is not our primary experience. Um, And it helps us realize that like, okay, that, that, that screen life is like secondary to what's going on in the physical. And, And I think it's important for, and, and admiring creation and some little habits in that regard can really help us kind of keep those things in, in the right order. That's right. So true. Okay. Value silence. Uh, yeah, I did this weird thing. I put this in the book and I was really honestly kind of nervous. I talk about how I would have these days when I was in middle school. I was kind of a weird kid in middle. I mean, who isn't a weird kid in middle school? I was, but I was to a say. Kid in middle school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would like, you know, I had, I had a, I had a handful of friends and there'd be some days where I just show up to school and I decide I'm not talking to anyone unless they talk to me and then I'm going to answer in very short ways as much as possible. So I share that story. And I, I just, they were like my observation days. Like I would intentionally like watch people and be like, you know, try to learn how people interact. And, and I was like, I'm just going to try to not talk and not be a main character of my day, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a weird middle school thing for me to do, but I think like some more practices like that in our adult lives could be really valuable. Like there's this temptation with social media to see ourselves as the main character of a movie and everybody else is the supporting actor or actress. And I think if we're silent, 
you know, we show up to community group and maybe we're one, usually one of the more talkative ones. And we decide, you know what, this week, I'm going to let everybody else talk. I'm not going to talk. We take, if we're, if we're active on social media, we decide we're not going to post for a few weeks. You know, maybe you stay on, but you just don't post. Or if you're not, if you don't have that self-control, you give someone the passwords to your social media, not because, you know, not because I'm telling you to like log off and that's going to fix all our problems because it's not. But if you're like, I don't want to say anything on social media for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Great. Like that can be a really great way for you to learn. Like not everybody cares what you have to say. Mm -hmm. I've had to do that from time to time. We're often more interested in our own thoughts than anybody else. Usually I think. And so so it's sometimes helpful to just be silent and recognize that not everybody cares what you say all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a good practice, right? To just be able to acknowledge the world around you. I feel like silence and then admiring creation can so often go hand in hand in my personal experience. Yeah. Okay. Pursue humility. This requires a lot of prayer. Um, Pray and ask God to remind you of who you are in light of who he is. Really, that was one of the definitions my youth pastor gave us when we were in high school about what humility is, is it's not hating yourself. It's not thinking about how terrible you are. It's recognizing who you are in light of who God is. So pray and ask the Lord to do that for you. Cause it's kind of hard in our sin and in our brokenness to, to recognize that ourselves. So we have to pray and ask the Lord to help us see who we are in light of who God is and admit when you're wrong online, like on a very practical level. Um, most of us don't admit, like if we're in an argument or something like that, most of us don't admit we're wrong. Like I've seen probably I can count on one hand. In fact, I can remember a few instances of very public thinkers in like the Christian space that I live in admitting they were wrong in a Twitter thread. And I can remember them so clearly because it's so shocking when it happens. Mm. So I think admitting when we're wrong, like publicly online, if we've had some sort of spat with a friend or family member in a Facebook comment section or on Twitter and assuming the best of others, um, Mm -hmm. that that's a way to, I think, to express and act in humility is mm. assume the best of others and don't always assume people are out to be the most toxic version of themselves. You know, think, Hey, maybe this person's just being mean because I had a bad day, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that can be kind of an expression of humility. Okay. Establish accountability. This one's easy, kind of short, like surround yourself with people who are t- who will tell you when you're being a fool. We need people who can wound us when we need wounding and bind our wounds when they need bound. Mm-hmm. Plenty of us have friends and people close to us who can bind our wounds. I think too many of us don't have people who have permission to wound us. And I've seen too many leaders and mm-hmm. friends fall in various ways because they surrounded themselves with yes men or yes women who just praised everything they did and never, never called them out for being dumb in various ways. Um, and so like I have some friends who have total permission to call me out when I'm being a fool, not just online, like in general, but I think right. like we should, if we, if we have friends like that accountability partners or people in our small group, we should make sure that they're like watching our online lives too. Like yeah. that's, that's inbounds. It's not like that's fake or not real life. Like I said before, that's as real life as anything. So that, that should be inbounds for criticism too. Whew. Yeah. I mean, we just see that one running rampant right now, don't we? Yes. Okay. And then build friendships. Yeah. We're not meant to walk the Christian life alone. Uh, the path is narrow, but there is room for at least a couple of us to walk side by side and bear one another's burdens. And so I think it's really hard to sacrificially love people on the internet a lot. Um, it, that, that sort of deepest version of love that we can express. It's really easy to like make acquaintances and say nice things like compliment each other. And that's all well and good. I'm all about 
even superficial positivity being injected into the internet. Like that's great. Um, But I think real friendship has to exist primarily offline. Mm -hmm. The internet, I think can serve as a nice tool to maintain friendship. I think it can be really hard to um, have a friendship live like entirely online. So I think building like offline friendships for people who can, with people who can literally be a shoulder to cry on when you need one, as, as close as maybe your on like I have some friends who I primarily engage with them online and we get together at like conferences once or twice a year. Like if, if my wife suddenly passed away or something like that, I, I'm not, they're not going to be here to comfort That's me. Right. Like I'm going to have friends who are here to comfort me. And so you need to have those kinds of embodied real friendships and that can help you realize that the online space is, is really secondary to the offline embodied space. Well, and I want to real quickly kind of add to that, because this is something that you wrote as well in a general sense, is that whole building friendship face-to-face, we at times will be lonely and we will pick up social media and get that quick fix. And then sometimes that does prevent us from going ahead and reaching out to that friend to say, hey, let's grab coffee. Hey, let's go take that walk. And so I just want to encourage people, like instead of grabbing social media to do that, go ahead and maybe instead send the text to your friend and ask if they can get together. Yeah. And I, I said a little bit of this about this, even in our conversation a few minutes ago, a lot of us want the feeling of intimacy mm-hmm. with people. I don't just mean like sexual or romantic. I just mean like right. close friendship. A lot of us want the feeling of intimacy without the reality of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like we want to feel like we have friends. Right. We want to feel like we have friends and people who like us without letting them in close enough to see our cracks and without having to show up when they're going through a tragedy and Mm -hmm. without giving them permission to wound us when we need wounding. And so I think a lot of us in our pursuit of real intimacy settle for pseudo feelings of intimacy. And like you said, you only have so much time in the day. So if you're chatting with people on Instagram DMs or on Facebook, and that hour you spent doing that after dinner could have been spent having coffee with a friend from church or in your neighborhood. Um, that's time that's gone. You're not going to hear me say Facebook friends are bad or you shouldn't talk. Right. To like, that's not what I'm saying. But you only have so many hours in the day. And if you spend two hours a day connecting with people on Facebook, that's two fewer hours you could have connecting with people in real life, which I would argue is more valuable and, and Absolutely. can really prove to be so in the long term. Well, as we close out here, speak directly to the Christian um, who senses this impact, the social media may be having, you know, on their life, but they're still really struggling to set limits. Um, How would you encourage them to take the next step? First thing, very practically, uh, set screen time limits on your phone and give someone else the password. So Mm. I have done this, but I have usually given myself the password mm-hmm, and uh, it's like, you know, I find myself at eight o'clock at night, like typing in my screen time password to be able to scroll Instagram for 30 more minutes. And it's like, I know I've already spent my hour today, but let me scroll for 30 more minutes. And so I think most effectively a screen time password and a screen time limit is best used when you give your password to your spouse or to like, if you have a friend or accountability partner that you would normally meet, like meet with weekly or biweekly or something like that. And that way you have to ask permission to use those mm-hmm. things for whatever reason, you know, I mean, you might have a legitimate reason. Like I'm trying to coordinate coffee with my friend over Instagram DMs, but I need to be able to get back in. So have someone who you can give the password to, to 
uh, kind of block yourself from spending too much time there. I mean, very practical. Like I'm so grateful. I'm assuming Android phones and stuff have these features, but like Apple phones, I'm so glad they added this feature. Um, also talk to talk about your relationship with social media in your small group or with your accountability partner. If you have someone you meet with regularly, or if you're in a small group, if you're not, you should get in one. That's a whole other conversation. But I think it, there's still, even among people my age, like I'm only 30 and I grew up, like I was in middle school with MySpace, high school with Facebook. I think we still often treat social media like it's a different world. Like it's mm-hmm. not a part of who we actually are. You talk about like, well, yeah, that was on social media, but in the real world, no. Social media is the real world. We have to understand. I mean, it isn't the best world, but it is as much real as physical life is. And so I think we have to understand that conversations around the internet and our use of it are in bounds in communities that were the, you know, we have permission to be calling each other out or holding each other accountable, those sorts of things. And third and finally, um, it is likely that you have started to see the online world as primary and the offline world as secondary. If you're asking these questions, there's a really great quote, if I can share it sure. um, from Bo Burnham. He's a stand-up comedian and frankly, he's can be a little crass, uh, very <laughs> crass. So I'm not like recommending you go watch all of his stuff, but he has, he thinks very deeply about these things. Uh, he actually uh, wrote and directed a movie called eighth grade, which is ironically and appropriately rated R because if we're all honest, the eighth grade experience is pretty rated R (laughs) like, um, so, uh, isn't that kind of funny how that works? But, um, but in that movie, he does like the main character, an eighth grader is trying to like become a YouTube star. And it's a great sort of like analysis of social media, especially its effects on young people. He writes this, he said, what is the feeling of walking through your life and not just living your life, not just living your life, which is already hard and impossible, but also taking inventory of life. Like we're being viewers of our own life. We're living an experience and at the same time, hovering behind ourselves, watching ourselves live that experience. We're being nostalgic for moments that haven't even happened yet. We're planning our futures to look back on them. Those are really weird dissociative things that I think are new because of the specific structure of social media and how it dissociate ourselves from Mm -hmm. ourselves. I think, I mean, if you just see like folks are going on vacations for Instagram content, like people are really doing these things. And I think what we should do in, in community with others, because like any fault or any weakness, any sin, it's really hard to see these things in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We should be kind of taking inventory and zooming out and asking some of the questions like Bo Burnham asks, asking questions like, am I living as though my online life is my primary experience and my offline life is just content generation for the internet? Like Ooh. there are folks who really think that way. And oh man, I, re- I want to go on vacation here because the pictures would be amazing. And like, you don't say for Instagram, but you're like thinking it. And so I think we should really take inventory on, are we living our offline lives in service of our online lives? And if we find ourselves upset with what the answer to that question is, we need to ask for help. That's where that accountability and the friendship Mm -hmm. really comes in. So I think being honest and open enough to even ask those questions and having friends to help us answer them is really important. Whew, that's good. That's really good because I think some, in some ways it's a slow fade into that. I mean, I think some people just consciously make the choice. I'm going to do this, but for the majority of us, that's a slow fade and a slow switch that's into right. I'm functioning in the world of online. And then my real world is, is happening as a content generator. So 
Chris, thank you so much. Your book Terms of Service comes out February 1st. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, you said that you have a newsletter. Go ahead and tell everybody where they can best connect with you. I know the newsletter is also, is it termsofservice.com? Termsofservice.social. Uh, it's a Substack newsletter, so you can find it at termsofservice.substack.com as well. Um, but I'm on Twitter. as That's my primary social media yeah. platform. Chris Martin 17 is where you can find me on Twitter. The link to the newsletter is actually there. So Chris Martin 17. And, and I'm one of my things, let me say this. I, I don't like promoting myself. Like even I like having conversations like this, but it's like awkward for me to like promote my book. So I love if, if you're listening to this and this is helpful for you, or you want to talk more practically, I want to take as much time as possible to DM with people, email with people. Hmm. Do not has, I'm not famous. So I'm not like dealing with a thousand people trying to get my attention. I will, I want to personally engage with anyone who, who wants to talk about this stuff or needs help. So do not hesitate to reach out. Well, I hope you finish this episode with some simple practices you can implement that will help you live abundantly in this physical world versus the digital world. I do hope you'll purchase and read Terms of Service and connect with Chris if you have any questions or comments. Also, don't forget to make sure you're following Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app so you don't miss next Tuesday's conversation with John Eldridge. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.